Chapter One, Section Two of the History of Mr. Polly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Three. Mr. Polly was not naturally interested in hosiery and gentlemen's outfitting. At times, indeed, he urged himself to a spurious curiosity about that trade, but presently something more congenial came along and checked the effort. He was apprenticed in one of those large, rather low-class establishments which sell everything, from pianos and furniture to books and millinery. A department store, in fact. The Port Burdock Drapery Bazaar at Port Burdock, one of the three townships that are grouped around the Port Burdock Naval Dockyards. There he remained six years. He spent most of the time inattentive to business in a sort of uncomfortable happiness, increasing his indigestion. On the whole, he preferred business to school. The hours were longer, but the tension was not nearly so great. The place was better aired. You were not kept in for no reason at all, and the cane was not employed. You watched the growth of your moustache with interest and impatience and mastered the beginnings of social intercourse. You talked, and found there were things amusing to say. Also you had regular pocket-money, and a voice in the purchase of your clothes, and presently a small salary. And there were girls, and friendship. In the retrospect, Port Burdock sparkled with the facets of quite a cluster of remembered jolly times. "'Didn't save much money, though,' said Mr. Polly. The first apprentice's dormitory was a long, bleak room, with six beds, six chests of drawers and looking-glasses, and a number of boxes of wood or tin. It opened into a still longer and bleaker room of eight beds, and this into a third apartment with yellow-grained paper and American cloth tables, which was the dining-room by day and the men's sitting and smoking-room after nine. Here Mr. Polly, who had been an only child, first tasted the joys of social intercourse. At first there were attempts to bully him, on account of his refusal to consider face-washing a diurnal duty but two fights with the apprentices next above him established a useful reputation for collar, and the presence of girl apprentices in the shop somehow raised his standard of cleanliness to a more acceptable level. He didn't, of course, have very much to do with the feminine staff in his department, but he spoke to them casually as he traversed foreign parts of the bazaar, or got out of their way politely or helped them lift down heavy boxes, and on such occasion he felt their scrutiny. Except in the course of business or at meal-times, the men and women of the establishment had very little opportunity of meeting. The men were in their rooms, and the girls in theirs. Yet these feminine creatures, at once so near and so remote, affected him profoundly. He would watch them going to and fro, and marvel secretly at the beauty of their hair, or the roundness of their necks, or the warm softness of their cheeks, 
or the delicacy of their hands. He would fall into passions for them at dinner-time, and try to show devotions by his manner of passing the bread and margarine at tea. There was a very fair-haired, fair-skinned apprentice at the adjacent haberdashery, to whom he said good morning every morning, and for a period it seemed to him the most significant event in his day. When she said, I do hope it will be fine to-morrow, he felt it marked an epoch. He had had no sisters, and was innately disposed to worship womankind. But he did not portray as much to Platt and Parsons. To Platt and Parsons he affected an attitude of seasoned depravity towards womankind. Platt and Parsons were his contemporary apprentices in departments of the drapery shop, and the three were drawn together into a close friendship by the fact that all their names began with P. They decided they were the three P's, and went about together of an evening with the bearing of desperate dogs. Sometimes when they had money they went into public houses and had drinks. Then they would become more desperate than ever, and walk along the pavement under the gas-lamps, arm in arm, singing. Platt had a good tenor voice, and had been in a church choir, and so he led the singing. Parsons had a serviceable bellow, which roared and faded and roared again very wonderfully. Mr. Polly's share was an extraordinary lowing noise, a sort of flat recitative which he called singing seconds. They would have sung catches if they had known how to do it, but as it was they sung melancholy music-hall songs about dying soldiers and the old folks far away. They would sometimes go into the quieter residential quarters of Port Burdock, where policemen and other obstacles were infrequent, and really let their voices soar like hawks, and feel very happy. The dogs of the district would be stirred to hopeless emulation, and would keep it up for long after the three peas had been swallowed up by the night. One jealous brute of an Irish terrier made a gallant attempt to bite Parsons, but was beaten by numbers and solidarity. The three peas took the utmost interest in each other, and found no company so good. They talked about everything in the world, and would go on talking in their dormitory, after the gas was out, until the other men were reduced to throwing boots. They skulked from their departments in the slack hours of the afternoon to gossip in the packing-room of the warehouse. On Sundays and bank holidays they went for long walks together, talking. Platt was white-faced and dark, and disposed to undertones and mystery and a curiosity about society and the demi-monde. He kept himself en courant by reading a penny paper of infinite suggestion called Modern Society. Parsons was of an ampler build, already promising fatness, with curly hair and a lot of rolling, rollicking, curly features and a large blob-shaped nose. He had a great memory and a real interest in literature. 
He knew great portions of Shakespeare and Milton by heart, and would recite them at the slightest provocation. He read everything he could get hold of, and if he liked it, he read it aloud. It did not matter who else liked it. At first Mr. Polly was disposed to be suspicious of this literature, but was carried away by Parsons' enthusiasm. The three peas went to a performance of Romeo and Juliet at the Port Burdock Theatre Royal, and hung over the gallery, fascinated. After that they made a sort of password out of, Do you bite your thumbs at us, sir? To which the countersign was, We bite our thumbs. For weeks the glory of Shakespeare's Verona lit Mr. Polly's life. He walked as though he carried a sword at his side, and swung a mantle from his shoulders. He went through the grimy streets of Port Burdock with his eye on the first-floor windows, looking for balconies. A ladder in the yard flooded his mind with romantic ideas. Then Parsons discovered an Italian writer, whose name Mr. Polly rendered as Boccaccio, and after some excursions into that author's remains, the talk of Parsons became infested with the word amours and Mr. Polly would stand in front of his hosiery fixtures, trifling with paper and string, and thinking of perennial picnics under dark olive trees in the everlasting sunshine of Italy. And about that time it was that all three peas adopted turn-down collars, and large, loose, artistic silk ties, which they tied very much on one side, and wore with an air of defiance and a certain swashbuckling carriage. And then there came the glorious revelation of that great Frenchman whom Mr. Polly called Rabaloose. The three peas thought the birth-feast of Gargantua the most glorious piece of writing in the world, and I'm not sure that they were wrong. And on wet Sunday evenings, when there was the danger of him singing, they would get Parsons to read it aloud. Towards the several members of the Y.M.C.A. who shared the dormitory, the three P's maintained a sarcastic and defiant attitude. "'We got a perfect right to do what we want in our corner,' Platt maintained. "'You do what you like in yours.' "'But the language,' objected Morrison, the white-faced, earnest-eyed improver who was leading a profoundly religious life under great difficulties. "'Language, man!' roared Parsons. "'Why, it's literature!' "'Sunday isn't the time for literature.' "'It's the only time we've got, and besides—' The horrors of religious controversy would begin. Mr. Polly stuck loyally to the three Ps, but in the secret places of his heart he was torn. A fire of conviction burnt in Morrison's eyes, and spoke in his urgent, persuasive voice. He lived the better life manifestly, chaste in word and deed, industrious, studiously kindly. When the junior apprentice had sore feet and homesickness, Morrison washed the feet and comforted the heart and he helped other men to get through their work when he might have gone early, a superhuman thing to do. 
Polly was secretly a little afraid to be left alone with this man and the power of the spirit that was in him. He felt watched. Platt, also struggling with things his mind could not contrive to reconcile, said, "'That confounded hypocrite!' "'He's no hypocrite,' said Parsons. "'He's no hypocrite, old man. But he's got no blessed joy de vive. That's what's wrong with him. Let's go down to the Harbour Arms and see some of those blessed old captains getting drunk.' "'Short of sugar, old man,' said Mr. Polly, slapping his trouser-pocket. "'Oh, come on,' said Parsons. "'Always do it on tuppence for a bitter.' "'Let me get my pipe on,' said Platt, who had recently taken to smoking with great ferocity. "'Then I'm with you.' Pause and struggle. "'Don't ram it down, old man,' said Parsons, watching with knitted brows. Don't ram it down. Give it air. Seen my stick, old man? Right-o. And, leaning on his cane, he composed himself in an attitude of sympathetic patience towards Platt's incendiary efforts. 4. Jolly days of companionship they were for the incipient bankrupt on the stile to look back upon. The interminable working hours of the bazaar had long since faded from his memory, except for one or two conspicuous rows and one or two larks, but the rare Sundays and holidays shone out like diamonds among pebbles. They shone with the mellow splendour of evening skies reflected in calm water, and athwart them all went old Parsons, bellowing an interpretation of life gesticulating, appreciating, and making appreciate, expounding books, talking of that mystery of his, the joy de vivre. There were some particularly splendid walks on bank holidays. The three peas would start on Sunday morning early, and find a room in some modest inn, and talk themselves asleep, and return singing through the night, or having an argy-bargy about the stars on Monday evening. They would come over the hills out of the pleasant English countryside in which they had wandered, and see Port Burdock spread out below, a network of interlacing street-lamps and shifting tram-lights against the black, beacon-gemmed immensity of the harbour waters. "'Back to the collar, old man,' Parsons would say. There is no satisfactory plural to old man, so he always used it in the singular. "'Don't mention it,' said Platt. And once they got a boat for the whole summer day, and rowed up past the moored ironclads, and the black old hulks, and the various shipping of the harbour, past the white troopship, and past the trim front, and the ships, and interesting vistas of the dockyard to shallow channels and rocky, weedy wildernesses of the upper harbour. And Parsons and Mr. Polly had a great dispute and quarrel that day as to how far a big gun could shoot. The country over the hills behind Port Burdock is all that an old-fashioned, scarcely disturbed English countryside should be. In those days the bicycle was still rare and costly, 
and the motor-car had yet to come and stir up rural serenities. The three peas would take footpaths haphazard across fields, and plunge into unknown winding lanes between high hedges of honeysuckle and dog-rose. Greatly daring, they would follow green bridle-paths through primrose-studded undergrowths, or wander waist-deep in the bracken of beech-woods. About twenty miles from Port Burdock there came a region of hop-gardens and host-crowned farms, and further on, to be reached only by cheap tickets at bank-holiday times, was a sterile ridge of very clean roads and red sand-pits and pine and gorse and heather. The three peas could not afford to buy bicycles, and they found boots the greatest item of their skimpy expenditure. They threw appearance to the winds at last, and got ready-made working men's hobnails. There was much discussion and strong feeling in this step in the dormitory. There is no countryside like the English countryside for those who have learned to love it. Its firm yet gentle lines of hill and dale, its ordered confusion of features, its deer parks and downlands, its castles and stately houses, its hamlets and old churches, its farms and ricks and great barns and ancient trees, its pools and ponds and shining threads of rivers, its flower-starred hedgerows, its orchards and woodland patches, its village greens and kindly inns. Other countrysides have their pleasant aspects, but none such variety, none that shine so steadfastly through the year. Picardy is pink and white and pleasant in the blossom time. Burgundy goes on with its sunshine and wild hillsides and cramped vineyards, a beautiful tune repeated and repeated. Italy gives salatas and wayside chapels and chestnuts and olive orchards. The Ardennes has its woods and gorges. Touraine and the Rhineland, the wide Campania with its distant Apennines, and the neat prosperities and mountain backgrounds of South Germany. All clamour their especial merits at one's memory. And there are the hills and fields of Virginia like an England grown very big and slovenly, the trim New England landscape, a little bleak and rather fine like the New England mind, and the wide, rough country roads and hills and woodland of New York State. But none of these change scene and character in three miles of walking, nor have so mellow a sunlight, nor so diversified a cloudland, nor confess the perpetual refreshment of the strong, soft winds that blow off the sea as our mother England does. It was good for the three peas to walk through such a land, and forget for a time that indeed they had no footing in it all, that they were doomed to toil behind counters in such places as Port Burdock for the better part of their lives. They would forget the customers and shop-walkers and department-buyers and everything, and become just happy wanderers in a world of pleasant breezes and bird-songs and shady trees. 
The arrival at the inn was a great affair. No one, they were convinced, would take them for drapers, and there might be a pretty serving-girl, or a jolly old lady, or what Parsons called a bit of a character, drinking in the bar. There would always be waiting inquiries as to what they could have, and it would work out always at cold beef and pickles, or fried ham and eggs and shandy-gaff, two pints of beer and two bottles of ginger-beer foaming in a huge round-bellied jug. The glorious moment of standing lordly at the inn doorway and staring out at the world, the swinging sign, the geese upon the green, the duck-pond, a waiting wagon, the church-tower, a sleepy cat, the blue heavens, with the sizzle of the frying audible behind one, the keen smell of the bacon, the trotting feet bearing the repast, the click and clatter as the tableware is finally arranged, a clean white cloth. Ready, sir, or ready, gentlemen. Better hearing that than, forward, Polly, look sharp. The going in, the sitting down, the falling too. Bread, O oh man. Right-o. Don't bag all the crust, old man. Once a simple-mannered girl in a pink print dress stayed and talked with them as they ate. Led by the gallant Parsons, they professed to be all desperately in love with her, and courted her to say which she preferred of them. It was so manifest she did prefer one, and so impossible to say which it was held her there, until a distant maternal voice called her away. Afterwards, as they left the inn, she waylaid them at the orchard corner, and gave them, a little shyly, three keen yellow-green apples, and wished them to come again some day, and vanished, and reappeared looking after them as they turned the corner, waving a white handkerchief. All the rest of the day they disputed over the signs of her favour, and the next Sunday they went there again. But she had vanished, and a mother of forbidding aspect afforded no explanations. If Platt and Parsons and Mr. Polly live to be a hundred, they will none of them forget that girl as she stood with a pink flush upon her, faintly smiling and yet earnest parting the branches of the hedgerows, and reaching down apple in hand. Which of them was it had caught her spirit to attend to them? And once they went along the coast, following it as closely as possible, and so they came at last to Foxbourne, that easternmost suburb of Brailing and Hampstead-on-the-Sea. Foxbourne seemed a very jolly little place to Mr. Polly that afternoon. It has a clean sandy beach instead of the mud and pebbles and coaly defilement of Port Burdock, a row of six bathing machines, and a shelter on the parade in which the three peas sat after a satisfying but rather expensive lunch that had included celery. Rows of verandahed villas proffered apartments. They had feasted in an hotel with a porch painted white and gay with geraniums above and the high street with the old church at the head 
had been full of an agreeable afternoon stillness. "'Nice little place for a business,' said Platt sagely from behind his big pipe. It stuck in Mr. Polly's memory. 5. Mr. Polly was not so picturesque a youth as Parsons. He lacked richness in his voice, and went about in these days with his hands in his pockets, looking quietly speculative. He specialised in slang and the disuse of English, and he played the role of an appreciative stimulant to Parsons. Words attracted him curiously, words rich in suggestion, and he loved a novel and striking phrase. His school training had given him little or no mastery of the mysterious pronunciation of English, and no confidence in himself. His schoolmaster, indeed, had been both unsound and variable. New words had terror and fascination for him. He did not acquire them, he could not avoid them, and so he plunged into them. His only rule was not to be misled by the spelling. That was no guide, anyhow. He avoided every recognised phrase in the language, and mispronounced everything in order that he shouldn't be suspected of ignorance, but whim. Sesquipleden, he would say, sesquipleden virgibus. Eh? said Platt. Eloquent rhapsodus. Where? asked Platt. In the warehouse, old man. All among the tablecloths and blankets. Carlyle. He's reading aloud. Doing the high froth. Spuming. Windmilling. Wah, wah. It's a sight worth seeing. He'll bark his blessed knuckles one of these days on the fixtures, old man. He held an imaginary book in one hand and waved an eloquent gesture. Here, too, shall every hero, in so much as notwithstanding for evermore, come back to reality. He parodied the enthusiastic Parsons. So that, in fashion, and thereby upon things, and not under things, articulariously, he stands. I should laugh if the governor dropped on him, said Platt. He'd never hear him coming. The old man's drunk with it. Fair drunk, said Polly. I never did. It's worse than when he got on to Rabaloose. End of chapter one.